passage that I've been asked to speak on. Um, my immediate thought was, well, this is no great surprise. Um, after all, I'm church treasurer, uh, and so people would expect me to talk about money and giving. Uh, that was, of course, until I reread uh, the verses in chapter 5. Uh, and my eyes became transfixed on verse 5. And Ananias, when he heard these words, fell down dead. Um, of course, one death is bad enough. Uh, but then I looked at verse 10. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than she also, Sapphira, she also fell down dead. If you are already feeling a little bit uncomfortable about what may be coming... Uh, I promise you, uh, I'm not going to ask you to sell all your possessions and give your money to the church. I'm certainly not about to tell you that if you don't, there's a very strong chance that you will die. However, I do believe there are actually some important lessons in this passage of Scripture. But let me just start by just giving a little bit of background to set the scene. So Peter and John were addressing the people, and this was shortly after the miracle where the cripple who'd been sat outside the temple um, I think it was for over 40 years, been crippled since birth, was healed. We're told that following that miracle, some 5,000 believers um, uh, effectively joined the church. They became believers. But Peter and John were under quite a bit of pressure from the priest, the chief of the temple police, and some Sadducees, who is the name for the Jewish aristocrats. They were indignant, the fact that Peter and John were preaching and claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. You may well ask, why were they so upset about this? Well, to them, resurrection was a dangerous doctrine, because if God was to suddenly put everything right once and for all, their current positions of power and influence would be under threat. After spending a night in jail, Peter and John were taken to a meeting the next morning with all the rulers and the religious leaders where they were challenged about their conduct. We're told that Peter let rip, full of the Holy Spirit, stating that the man was healed because of the power in the name of Jesus and proclaimed that salvation comes by no other way. We're also told that Peter and John were supremely confident despite being both uneducated and having had no training in the scriptures. And the writer of Acts, Luke, tells us that the source of their boldness came from their experience of having spent time with Jesus. I wonder if there's a clue in there for us, spending time in Jesus' presence. The fact that the healed man was present at that meeting meant that the rulers could not deny what had happened and so Peter and John were threatened and told never to use the name of Jesus ever again with anyone. But an interesting reply from Peter, he said, should we listen to you or God? Besides, how can we keep quiet about what we have seen and heard? We currently enjoy extraordinary freedom here in the West. I wonder if this will always be the case. I wonder how strong my faith, your faith, would be in the face of persecution. The religious leaders repeated their threats but released Peter and John because they were scared of a backlash from the crowd. So they went up to meet with some friends to praise, uh, praise God and to pray. And the scripture says um, they were praying for fearless confidence in preaching the word. 
interesting that they didn't pray for the persecution to stop and they didn't pray for the authorities to be converted. They prayed for boldness and for God to continue to work powerfully. We're then told that as they were praying, the Holy Spirit came in power. The building shook and they were each filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak God's word with fearless confidence. Exactly the prayer that they prayed. I wonder if there is anything that is stopping us from speaking with fearless confidence. From witnessing for Jesus. Is it fear of man? Ask yourself, are you afraid to look foolish in front of others? Two of our Life Hubs are currently working through Mark Batterson's excellent book, Chase the Lion. And in a recent talk about the book, Mark recalls some Bible events where a number of individuals on the face of it looked somewhat foolish. Here's the list. Noah looked foolish building an ark. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at the age of 90. David looked foolish going into battle with just a slingshot. The wise men looked foolish following a star. Peter looked foolish getting out of a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus looked foolish hanging half naked on a cross. Mark goes on to say that faith is the willingness to look foolish and the results speak for themselves. Noah was saved from the flood. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. David defeated Goliath. The wise men found the Messiah. Peter walked on water and Jesus was raised from the dead. Are we prepared to look foolish? Mark Batterson finishes by saying, if we are not willing to look foolish, then we are foolish indeed. So, um, that's by way of an introduction. Sorry about that, but I'll get on to what I was going to say now. This passage is all about the early church living as the true people of God. The temple authorities thought that they were the guardians of the traditions of Israel. But in the very same city, Jerusalem, there was a community practicing the life of the true covenant people of God. And in so doing, they were upstaging all that was going on in the temple. As Debbie read before, we are told the whole congregation was united as one, one heart, one mind. They didn't claim ownership of their possessions and they shared everything. Why would you do this? Would you do it? We're told also that no one among the congregation was needy and that those who owned fields and houses sold them and brought the entire proceeds to the apostles as an offering which was then distributed to the needy. What we do with our money and our possessions declares loudly what sort of community we are. And a community is made up of people, and so by definition, it must start with us as individuals. The early church's practice was crystal clear and definite. 
they were able to give such a powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus because they'd actually seen it. That they could demonstrate the reality of it in ways that many Christians today, who often balk at even giving a tithe of their income to the church, can only dream about. Do we, do you truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus? How real is it to you? And if we say that it's real, why does our behavior not often reflect this? I believe that our attitude to our possessions, and especially money, are indicative of where our hearts are and reflects the extent of our understanding and trust in the faithfulness of God. In Luke 12, verse 22, Jesus is talking to the disciples about money and possessions and tells them not to worry because God will provide. Verse 31 says... He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Let me read that again. He, God, will give you all, not just some, but all you need, not what you want, all that you need from day to day if, there's a condition there, if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Um, And just in case that's not enough, verse 34 says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will be also. Do we believe that God, our Heavenly Father, will provide for all our needs? Be honest, and if not, what do you believe in? Let's look for a while at this rather challenging chapter 5, which uh, I referred to earlier about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who we are told connived with him, sold a plot of land and secretly held back part of the proceeds um, for themselves and only brought a proportion of it to the disciples to distribute. Peter challenged them individually and accused them of lying to the Holy Spirit and they both dropped down dead. In the passage, we were told that the whole church and everyone heard uh, what had happened were frightened and realized that God was not to be deceived. Why do you think that the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira was so severe? Well, we don't really know. But... I suggest that it was down to simple dishonesty. Here's a question. What happens today when there is dishonesty amongst Christians? Another question. What areas of our lives are we, or at least are tempted to be, less than honest? The earlier Christian community in Acts was functioning somewhat akin to the temple itself. 
in so much as it was a place of holiness. In fact, it was so holy that every blemish was magnified. If we want to be part of such a community, we mustn't be surprised if God takes us seriously. Seriously enough to make it absolutely clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. There is a cost. In fact, it cost Jesus his life. Tom Wright, in his excellent study on Acts, says, If you call on the power of God, the Holy One, which you effectively do when you become a Christian, you are calling on the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, although he may decide to do this early, such as with Ananias and Sapphira. Pretty serious stuff. Tom Wright goes on to say, we can either choose to live in the presence of God the God who made the world and all that is in it and who longs passionately for it to be set right or we lapse back into some variety of easygoing paganism even if it has a Christian veneer. I suggest that holiness is not an optional extra. To name and claim the name of Jesus and to invoke the Holy Spirit is to, be the, is to claim to be the temple of the living God. And this has consequences. How often do we examine our lives and measure ourselves against the holiness scale? I confess to not doing this often enough, and I felt quite challenged in preparing this talk. we have to realize that we are in a constant battle. It's a spiritual battle. And because of this, it is essential to our basic well-being that we discern those areas of our nature which are unguarded and are open to attack by Satan. When Satan rebelled against God, he was placed under eternal judgment in what the Bible calls, in 2 Peter 2 verse 4, in gloomy caves and darkness until judgment day. This darkness is not simply a lack of visible light, but it is a moral darkness caused by the absence of God, who is light. So, if we tolerate darkness because we tolerate sin, we leave ourselves vulnerable to attack by Satan. Wherever there is willful disobedience to God's word, there is spiritual darkness. I recently came across a verse in the Bible that I had never ever noticed before. It's Luke 11, verse 35. It says, Make sure that the light you think you have is not really darkness. 
make sure that the light you think you have is not really darkness. What on earth does that mean? Proverbs 20, verse 27 says, The Lord's searchlight penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. So the Holy Spirit searches our hearts, but when we harbor sin, the light in us is obscured and is in darkness. Satan has legal access given to him by God to dwell in the domain of darkness. I read 2 Peter 2 verse 4 before, in gloomy caves and darkness until judgment day. So Satan has legal access given to him by God to dwell in the domain of darkness. And this means that we need to make sure that we do not allow areas of darkness to remain in our lives. When Peter denied Jesus three times, it is easy to conclude that it was as a result of fear. Yet Peter was not fearful by nature. After all, he was the disciple who drew a sword when the crowd came to arrest Jesus. Luke 22 verse 31 says, and this is Jesus speaking, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have all of you to sift you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up your brothers. So it's very clear that Satan had access to an area of darkness in Peter's heart So what line of attack did he use? Well, after the Passover meal, a dispute arose amongst the disciples about who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Peter, the guy who walked on water, the boldest and most outspoken of the disciples, prevailed. Satan fanned his air of superiority into an attitude of presumption and boasting. Remember what it says in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before a fall. It was pride that caused Satan to fall when he was thrown out of heaven. And it was this same darkness manipulated by Satan that also caused Peter's downfall. We desperately need to be discerning of our own hearts. God knows what areas of darkness are inside each of us. We all have them. We are all on a journey. And God will allow us to be tested in order to create greater humility and transparency in our lives. It may feel terrible, but God uses it to work for good in our lives. Peter was ignorant of the areas of darkness within him and it was his ignorance that left him open to attack. So do you know the areas where you are vulnerable to attack by Satan? The greatest defense that we can have against Satan is to maintain a truly honest heart before God.
And when the Holy Spirit shows us an area that needs repentance, we must overcome our first instinct, which is to defend ourselves. We do not need to, because Jesus is our advocate, pleading our case before God. There is no need for any shame. James 4 verse 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we are too proud to humble ourselves and admit when we are wrong, then God is opposed to us. The next verse, verse 7 says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Francis Frangipan, fantastic name, I love that name. Francis Frangipan, in his book, The Three Battlegrounds, which is all about spiritual warfare, says that there is a basic principle that we all need to adhere to. I'm going to read this twice because I think this is absolutely key. Victory begins with the name of Jesus on our lips. But it will not be consummated until the nature of Jesus is in our hearts. Victory begins with the name of Jesus on our lips, but it will not be consummated until the nature of Jesus is in our hearts. So going back to Peter in the early church in Acts, God used him to heal a lame man. And a new, humble Peter spoke with fearless confidence to the gathering crowd. In Acts 3 verse 12, Peter asked, Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power and godliness we had made him walk? Peter's victory over his pride and over Satan began with the name of Jesus on his lips. And it was consummated by the nature of Jesus in his heart. The darkness in Peter was displaced by light. The pride in Peter was replaced with Christ. I want to close with just a moment of reflection. And to help us all in that, I want to uh, play a video worship song.